0: This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, suicide survivors needing more support, but often getting less.
1: They feel like their lives were shattered. So there's a definite mark in their life about how life was before and how life was after. And they're left picking up these myriad of
0: pieces. Finding the right words when Radio Health Journal returns.
2: I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints.
1: You might say, oh, I didn't do anything different. I just did more of the same, going out to eat, taking Ubers. And so my life doesn't look any better, but I'm spending a lot more money.
0: How technology is making it harder to keep track of our money. Then... A lot of Americans my age, our first encounter with colors and names came from the Crayola crayon box.
2: The deeper meanings behind color. I'm Marty Peterson.
0: And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints.
2: Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play.
0: When we think of the major causes of death in the United States, we usually think of heart disease and cancer first. Accidents, strokes, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, and the flu are on the top 10 list too. And so is suicide. In 2017, more than 47,000 Americans died by suicide, a rate that's increased by 33% over the last 20 years. Slightly more than half of all cases involve a firearm, In fact, about 60 percent of all gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Experts say for every suicide, there are usually at least a half dozen survivors left behind to wrestle with a unique and crushing kind of grief.
1: It's an intense grief, a complicated grief, but many times there's also an element of trauma that's introduced into that grief. So you're not just dealing with the grief, you're dealing with the trauma.
0: That's Joyce Brueggemann, a suicide survivor and executive director of the San Diego County Support Group, Survivors of Suicide Loss.
1: There is imagined exposure. So many, many survivors dream about or think about or have this image in their mind of how their loved one died. And usually there's an element of violence involved in that, which really complicates the grieving process for people. And so those six to 10 people, which they think is a very conservative estimate, Are deeply impacted. And what I mean by deeply impacted, it's been proven that those who are left behind carry higher rates of drug and alcohol issues, mental health issues, and an increased risk for suicide themselves if they do not get plugged into effective postvention services. And to help work through that very unique and very complicated grief that has now, the best way I've heard it described by survivors, they feel like their lives were shattered. So there's a definite mark in their life about how life was before and how life was after, and they're left
3: picking up these myriad of pieces. Suicide bereavement was associated with the highest risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors compared to any other cause of death, including accidental overdoses or death from HIV or Alzheimer's, that the biggest risk for Suicidality among the bereaved was when the bereavement was due to suicide.
0: Dr. Holly Priggerson is co-director of the Center for Research on End-of-Life Care, professor of geriatrics and professor of sociology and medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College.
3: And it kind of leads to the questions of, will I do this? Will I be sort of compelled to do the same thing as the person that I love to kill themselves? Suicide is associated with more stigma and greater social isolation and a lot of people who kill themselves in their minds, they felt like they were a burden to others and that they were bringing pain and suffering into the lives of people that they loved and that it was painful for them to carry on. And I think that makes the bereavement adjustment a lot more complicated because the surviving family member struggles with things that they could have done or should have done or wanted to do and never did or just guilt and regret about rehearsing in their mind what they could have done to prevent what happened.
0: That's probably the biggest factor making survivor grief so different and so difficult to navigate. Brueggemann says guilt is nearly universal. One reason that they
1: struggle is because we do talk about suicide as being preventable. And I do believe that suicide is preventable, but not every suicide is preventable. And so survivors begin to ask those questions. If only I had, I should have been able to do this. And they spend a lot of time in that wrestling. I really wanted people to avoid that because it breaks my heart to watch people go through that wrestling. And where I stand today is I realize that's part of their recovery process. They
3: have to wrestle with that. They have to ask those questions. Most suicides tend to be in a person who feels that they've been a failure, that they're a burden to others in their world and their family, and that they're in excruciating pain and that they wanna be put out of their pain. And that's what's motivating their wish to die.
0: Imagining that struggle, picturing the last moments of life can be tormenting. Trauma may be especially intense for family members who find the body.
1: One of the questions I ask a new survivor is, did you witness a suicide or did you find the body? Because if either of those two things are a part of their experience, there is an elevated level of trauma that needs to be addressed. And if that trauma is not addressed, people definitely can move into experiencing symptoms of PTSD.
3: The location of death, of the scene of the suicide, is treated as a crime scene, and the police may be the first to tell the person or to find the surviving family member with the body of the person who killed themselves. And there are a lot of what they call sticky images in the survivor's mind if they were there to witness something gruesome and the police may ask questions that trigger PTSD and the surviving family members may feel traumatized by not only finding the body and learning of it from policemen and women who are not really mental health trained in knowing how to broach the topic and communicate news and discuss what happened in a way that doesn't feel as if they're being blamed or accused of something.
0: That last point is enormous for suicide survivors. There's not just self-blame involved. Briggerson says suicide survivors often feel like the whole world is blaming them. There
3: is stigma associated with suicide that doesn't come from, say, a death by cancer or from a heart attack, that there's an implicit blame that might be the surviving family member may feel that others are blaming them or that they should have or could have done more to prevent it. Certain religions consider it a sin. So there are a lot of social influences that make suicide a more complicated bereavement adjustment than death from natural causes.
0: Survivors may also try to bottle up the fact that they're angry at their loved one, sometimes exceptionally angry. But Priggerson says that's normal and, in her view, understandable. Especially depending on the age
3: of the person. I would think that the younger the person is, the more they feel like they were dependent on their father or their mother. And to kill yourself when you still have commitments to helping to raise a young child for example i can imagine being extremely angry and resentful and feeling that it's selfish and how could you abandon me when i need you anger it ties
1: very closely with guilt so you're left with these conflicting emotions so you're grieving the person who left and they played a part in their death And so the anger is front and center for a lot of people, not for everybody. Sometimes they turn that anger inward. If they turn the anger inward, that's when they beat themselves up with guilt. If they turn the anger outward, a lot of times there's a blame game going on. They might blame the person who died. They might blame a mental health professional who wasn't adequate, you know, didn't help in the situation. They might blame someone else. And again, it's moving that anger and beginning to understand and beginning to ascribe the responsibility without judgment.
0: As a result of the anger, guilt, and stigma, suicide survivors need more support than others grieving a death, but often get less.
1: A lot of times people want to help but don't know what to help, so they do nothing. So the people that we thought would be a support for us don't seem to know how to step into our pain and our grief. And so survivors of suicide loss experience many times what we call secondary losses. So we lose the person that we loved to suicide, which is hard enough, but then many times there are relationships that are lost due to the suicide. So where we expect people to step in and provide more support, they don't know what to do or they're afraid or some people start playing the blame game. You know, those left behind can be blamed that if they had done things differently, that that person would not have
3: died by suicide. The surviving family members feel that they're under a cloud of suspicion and that the people who contact them afterwards, not only do they not know what to say, but they feel like they don't know, there's a sense of attribution, who did or didn't do what in the time of need. In general, bereavement people don't know what to say and they're at a loss for words, but in the context of a suicide, it just makes things that more socially awkward and people don't know what to say and they don't know how to be a comfort. And I think they want to. They just are afraid of saying the wrong thing.
0: So what should a friend say? Pregerson says you can never go wrong with, I'm sorry for your loss.
3: What I've heard from a lot of bereaved people, particularly from suicide, is they don't like people to say that the person's in a better place or it was God's will or it's a relief that that person is gone or that the Other person claims to know what they're going through, because I think they feel like no one really knows what they're going through. But to say that they're sorry for them, that they actually do not know what they're going through and that they're there for them in their time of need and that they should feel comfortable calling them. But also I've heard people say, don't say call me. That puts the onus on the survivor when, in fact, what bereaved people really need is someone to sort of step in and step up to the plate and visit them and make meals for them and help them in their time of need. And being there listening, you don't have to say very much, but just being there to show your support is the most important thing.
0: Brueggemann says talking it out is vital. The feelings can't be bottled up or the risk of suicide for a survivor goes up. Support groups specifically for suicide survivors are among the few places where they do know what a survivor is going through. Finding a
1: safe place, first of all, so not just talking to anybody. That's what we call postvention services, those things that are in place, whether it be with a mental health professional, whether it be with an organization like mine or with a survivor of suicide law support. Some faith communities also can provide this, but you have to find a safe place. To talk about that anger, to talk about that guilt, to ask those questions and find a place that there's no judgment and there's no shame and having those conversations with other people. When you have those conversations within a survivor of suicide loss support group, what the benefit you have is you have people who completely understand your emotions are attuned, even though their experiences may be different. But on top of that, you have the role model of people who've walked through that grief and have found a way to a new good life.
0: One other thing a support group will do is look for warning signs of suicide, especially in the first six months. Brueggemann says it's not unusual for one or two people in a support group to admit to a newcomer that they thought seriously about it themselves and help them talk through their emotions conversations even outside a support group are a prime way to keep another suicide from happening. So Prigerson says, if a friend is a suicide survivor and starts talking about suicide themselves, take it seriously.
3: Don't be afraid to bring it up. Don't be afraid to ask them if they're thinking of hurting themselves. It might be awkward at first, but probing as to what are your reasons for living? What are your reasons for wanting to die? Do you feel like your wish to die outweighs your wish to live? Do you have a plan?
0: Pregerson and Brueggemann say not to fear that that kind of talk will encourage someone to attempt suicide. It won't, but it could prevent it. Suicide hotlines can also get people in touch with help. And it's important enough that the FCC has proposed a nationwide three-digit suicide and mental health crisis hotline with the number 988. Until that happens, the national hotline number is 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-TALK or online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Brueggemann's group, Survivors of Suicide Loss, can help refer you to your local suicide survivor support group. They're at soslsd.org. You can find out more resources on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. I'm Reed Pence.
3: About 27 million people in the United States have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. COPD is treatable, yet half of flare-ups are never reported to physicians, suggesting that patients are not seeking appropriate care. There are 1.2 million COPD hospital admissions each year, and one in four patients hospitalized for COPD flare-up die within a year. Dr. David Menino is a respiratory medical expert at GSK. It is important to act before COPD progresses. Flare-ups should be treated early on before the condition worsens. Having one COPD flare-up increases the risk of having another, and studies have shown each flare-up can cause more lung damage. You don't have to settle with symptoms that interfere with your daily routine. If you continue to experience COPD symptoms, speak with your doctor about what more can be done to manage them. Dr. Menino says studies demonstrate that early treatment brings improvement in lung function, breathlessness, and quality of life. Find out more at COPD.com. It's National
2: Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month, as well as National Family Caregivers Month. The two go together, since there are more than 16 million families and friends in the U.S. caring for someone with Alzheimer's. According to the Alzheimer's Association, four out of five caregivers say they'd like more support in providing care, especially from their families, yet 39% haven't engaged others in caregiving tasks. Ruth Drew, Director of Information and Support Services for the Alzheimer's Association, has suggestions on ways to help.
3: Make a standing appointment to give the caregiver a break so they can run errands or go to a support group. Caregivers often feel isolated or alone, so check in with a phone call or stop by for a visit. And when you offer support, be specific. Say, I'm going to the store, what do you need, rather than call me if you need anything.
2: People overwhelmingly agree caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's should be a group effort. Find more tips and resources for caregivers at ALZ.org. This month is Movember,
0: a time for men to think about their prostate health. But it's not just prostate cancer. Far more men are affected with a non-cancerous prostate condition, benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. It's an enlargement of the prostate that gets worse as men age, often blocking the urethra, producing bothersome urinary symptoms, and interrupting sleep. Dr. David Sussman of New Jersey Urology and paid consultant for Urolift believes men should know their treatment options.
3: Relief through medication can be inadequate and temporary with significant side effects such as dizziness, loss of libido, and erectile dysfunction. Now there are new options such as the Urolift system, a minimally invasive outpatient procedure for BPH, that in a pivotal FDA study did not cause new sustained erectile dysfunction but offers rapid relief and recovery.
0: Common side effects are mild to moderate and typically resolve in two to four weeks. Results may vary. Visit Urolift.com today to find a urologist near you and see if the Urolift system procedure is right for you. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this broadcast, please support our show by subscribing, sharing it with a friend, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and RadioHealthJournal.net. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Radio health Journal.
2: Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. It's
1: all being promulgated as a sort of an easy way to pay off your student loans. People need to understand what we know and don't know and
2: what all is involved.
0: The underappreciated risks of egg donation.
2: Then the changing face of HIV. Today it's a treatable chronic disease, but it hasn't gone away people will say, oh, I didn't think that was the problem anymore. We still have HIV. I didn't know that was around because it really has dropped off the radar.
0: All that and more on Radio Health Journal.